Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Luke 22 is where you can open your Bibles to. We'll dig in right there. You know, the context is Jesus has been teaching in the courtyard of the temple for the Passover week. He's been ignoring the authority of the priests and elders, and they've been questioning him. He's fast becoming the favorite teacher in the courtyard. Multitudes are gathering to him to listen to him every day. This drives the leadership nuts. There's a jealousy piece there, but moreover, he's acting like he runs the place. And this is just not okay. So then he goes away, he picks a place that is not part of his routine to have a last supper with his family, with his disciples and the people, his brothers and sisters that are following him and obeying him. And he replaces the third communion cup with the cup of grace, if you remember from last week, and he says, I'm going to establish a new covenant. So there have been covenants throughout history. There was a covenant with Adam and Eve. They broke it. There was a covenant with Noah. There was a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's another covenant with Moses. There's another covenant with David and Solomon. There's covenant with Joshua. There's a covenant with all of these kings that went forward that were, were part of that. And, and as we get to here, when Jesus says there's a new covenant, there's an absolutely pivotal port, point of human history. In fact, this changes all of human history. He says in verse 18 of this chapter that he's going until the kingdom comes. And that kingdom needs a few things. It needs a king, a high priest, a prophet, and judges. And Matthew really lays out the king, the priest, the prophet. Luke's going to emphasize the judge part and that there's going to be a leadership structure in the kingdom. The disciples immediately start to argue, if you remember, about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be part of that leadership structure. And they're maybe assuming that Jesus can't fill all the roles in the kingdom, but he clarifies for them in verses 25-26. We'll pick up there. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. The world does authority in that way. And those who exercise authority are, call themselves benefactors, do-gooders. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. And he does, he promises the disciples, verse 30, that they're going to be judges, but they're all going to be equal judges. There's no greater or lesser amongst the servants. There's one master, one king, one priest, one prophet, one high judge, and the rest of them are going to have roles. And then in verse 29, he says, I bestow upon you a kingdom. So here we are. There's the emphasis here on I, I bestow on you a kingdom. They don't have to do anything to be the greatest or, or the least. In fact, we don't have to do anything to be part of God's kingdom other than show up. Like there's nothing that God needs from us other than just our obedience and our love. So Peter's going to falter in this. Jesus points it out. He's going to have a throne, not of his own strength, but because Jesus bestows it on him. Nothing he does. In fact, I love that Peter's in here. Matthew contrasts Judah, Judas and Peter. And if all we had was Judas, like those who screw up are going to die, what a horrible gospel this would be. Because we see the mistakes of Peter, we know that we can make mistakes too and still have a throne in that kingdom, just like Peter does. So the, the importance of Peter and Luke gets fleshed out a lot more than Judas. He, doesn't, he spends more time on Peter. And all of this process that they don't need anything, verse 35, they only need to be part of the family. 
under Jesus's leadership. And Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. He's going to do it before the, 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 the rooster crows or the, the crow crows or whoever crows. And it's going to mark Peter for life. We're going to see later that as Peter went through the rest of his life, if anybody wanted to mock or pick on Peter, they would start cawing like a crow and make fun of the fact that he denied his Jesus, even though he's there in the courtyard preaching Jesus. Verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So they're all talking about falling. And he just got done telling Peter, you're going to fall. And then he goes out. It's important here that, that it's as he was accustomed. In other words, instead of that, Judas couldn't find him at the Last Supper. He couldn't bring the crowds there because it wasn't a usual place. But now that he's going to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, this is a place where he's easy to find. He's like, here we go, let's start this business. And he goes out and he's just waiting for the betrayers to show up. And as he's waiting, he's praying and he tells the disciples, do the same thing so that they don't enter into temptation. If you want to stay strong, go ahead and do your best to try, but you're going to need prayer in order to do that. So as Jesus prepares himself spiritually, puts on the the armor of the Lord in prayer, the disciples don't, and they, they nod off. And Luke records this, the account of, we don't know which disciple, but he's interviewing somebody because of the details we get in verse 41. And as he wa was withdrawn from them, about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed. So they can see him, and about a stone's throw, they can probably still hear him, which is how we get this account. The word withdrawn in verse 41 in the Greek there, it's, it's a violent rending or tearing away from. And, and you get a sense, again, he's gonna, in a few minutes he's going to be in such agony, he's going to have blood coming out of his pores. Verse 41 starts that narrative for Luke with that word. It's to be rent from or tore away from somebody. In other words, everything's going to be taken away from Jesus, and it starts with his family. It starts with the people he shared communion with. They're going to be ripped away from him and tore away from him. And soon they're going to abandon him. And he kneels down and he prays. So he goes to be with his God. The explanation of a stone's throw there explains how they can still hear this prayer. And it's a pretty vivid detail. That's what we call historicity. It's showing a first person detail. It's something, you know, it was about that far. It's something you say when you were actually there. So verse 42 saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthened him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. We can't overstate the, the turmoil that Jesus is in here. Jesus has to do and will do God's will. That's not in question. He's always done God's will. But God's will at this point is to drink a cup. And the cup there, that image, uh, is, is going to be something that has shown up throughout the Old Testament. Cups are usually associated with wrath. There's going to be a wrath that he needs to take. Not my will, but yours. This is God's will that he does this, that he provides himself as a sacrifice for humanity. you got to go all the way back to Genesis 22. Actually, you could go back to Adam and Eve. Adam fails in the garden and he says, you know, Eve's will or my will, not God's will. Jesus also is in a garden and he says, not my will, but yours be done. And so where Adam fails, 
Jesus wins. And, and even part of when he was giving the consequences of sin, God said there's going to be a day where a seed of Eve is going to you know, crush Satan and, and deal with this sin thing. Then he gets to Abraham, and he has Abraham go up a hill, actually the same hill he's getting crucified on, and he says to him, sacrifice your only son on my behalf. Abraham goes up and faithfully puts his son in the altar, and God stops him at the last minute. You know the story. And he's like, you don't need to do it. I will provide myself a sacrifice and a burnt offering for sin. And God then blesses Abraham, which starts the entire Abrahamic covenant, because of his willingness to give up his only son. This has always been God's plan. Like dying on the cross is not plan B or because we screwed things up. Dying on the cross is what God always intended. It's always been his design. So he gets into this moment and there's a certain agony that comes here as he's doing it. Gentile readers don't get all the Jewish imagery necessarily, but they do understand betrayal. They do understand when your friends fall asleep on you when you really need them. They do understand when people don't show up and they have to be there. 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again, not of a corruptible seed, but of an incorruptible seed through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. There is something that God has put a seed in us that is an incorruptible seed, and it starts with this atonement. We needed one incorruptible human being, and God's in this place, but he's here. I want to, the question then is, why is Jesus agonizing so much? Like, he's not scared of death. He gets whipped and beat like a warrior poet. He goes up on that cross without a word. He doesn't peep, scream out, yell, or, or blubber. Like, there's nothing about this process that Jesus isn't ready to do physically. But the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane is a different kind of thing. And, I'm, and again, he, he's moving forward to it. He could still run. But there's an issue of atonement that has to happen. The, the correct price to pay for any evil would be a, a counterbalance to that evil. But what if you're what if you're if you if you steal something, it's easy to get justice, you just return it. And and according to law, maybe give 20% more for the inconvenience of it all. But the problem isn't individual sins that God has to atone for. The agony of Jesus in the garden is that he's going to atone for the nature of humanity. It's not that I committed a sin, therefore I, I have a separation from God. It's that I am a sinner and I'm separated from God. And in this sense, like, it's the nature itself that has to have a new seed of redemption put into it, a new incorruptible seed that can grow into something righteous and holy. So the cross wasn't just a restitution for sin, it was a redemption for sin. It was a purchase price, not just paying for the sin, but to purchase the sinner themselves and bring them into a new family. Jesus is paying the price of the cup of wrath that was stored up for us. And he's saying, I'll take that. Now, here's the problem. And I think this is where he, he actually takes this cup. If you want to exchange or have an eternal life, something incorruptible, you have to make a fair trade for that eternal life, which would be another eternal life. And because we're corruptible into ourselves, you need something that is new in each person. In other words, when someone accepts Jesus into their life and accepts this payment price that he's going to give, they're actually accepting a new seed of life, an incorruptible seed, according to Peter. 
And there's this cup that's there that still stands in the way of Jesus. Isaiah 51, 17, just an example of an Old Testament reference. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you have who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. The drinking of a cup of wrath is all in. The dregs are little things at the bottom when you haven't filtered out the juice very well. And, you, you know, the, the, if you get coffee, it's the dregs or the grinds left at the bottom of the cup. The idea is it has to be drunk. And Jesus kind of knows this. So then you think, okay, well, how does one human being become the exchange for millions of human beings on the planet? How does that happen? Well, you need a, a being that has the omniscience, omnipresence, the majesty of an almighty God to be that sacrifice too. So you need someone with the nature of mankind, but also with the nature of God, both of them. God then becomes big enough to redeem all of us. Again, this isn't me. Isaiah 40, 16. Not even Lebanon, not even the forests of Lebanon could supply enough firewood for a sacrifice. Wild animals, all of them, would not provide enough burnt offerings. All the nations are insignificant before him. They're regarded as absolutely nothing. To whom can you compare God? One of us could never be the sacrifice for, for sin because sin's just too big. To what image can you liken him? To whom can you compare him? Only God can provide the redemption or purchase price for all of humanity. It's either him or nothing. There's no other path. And so an angel appears to him and helps him. Honestly, how drained is Jesus at this point when the Lord gives him the mercy of an angel to tend to him? Verse 27, he's accepted death, but that's not the real burden. I think the real burden's even bigger. Verse 44, and being in agony, the word there is the most extreme example of that, that thought that you can have. He's absolutely tore up. This creates quite a mood for the disciples, right? You're listening to the guy you've been following for three years and acts, like knowing what's coming, and he's absolutely tore up about it. So Jesus, incarnate God, is limited in this one choice. He's let himself be put in this position. And then his sweats become like drop of blood. The strain and the stress of this is extreme. And you, you're thinking, what does that kind of agony even feel like? And the closest I can even think of is it's a question of nature, right? So think of this. When my dog, when we eat upstairs and you spill something on the floor, my dog will go lick that thing up because it's in his nature. He's perfectly okay to lick that up. In fact, he'll do way worse. If you look in the backyard, he'll sniff his own poop. And then he'll taste it and he'll look. And, and I look at that and I'm kind of repulsed, but he doesn't mind one bit. He'll find a dead raccoon on the side of the road full of maggots and we'll have to like hold him back. He's so excited to go check that thing out because it's in his nature. He doesn't mind it. We, our sinful nature is something so foreign to God, so reprehensible to God. Take all of the nastiness you can think of, put it in a cup and say, here, drink it. And Jesus knows that's the cup he has to drink. He has to take on the nature of a sinner, even though he's not that being. And, and, and again, or just that thought of like things we hate. For me, I, 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 again, this is pretty gross. This is PG-13 today. If I'm going to throw up, there's a moment right before I throw up. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where your whole body goes cold. All your strength goes out. 
and you feel like you're right on the verge of you're just going to die and you're like, oh, I'm here. And then over the top, everything comes out. It's against my nature to do that thing. And there's an agony and a dread to it as it's coming on. You know that feeling. Multiply that by an infinite degree. And God taking on the nature of a sinner, a man who has never sinned, having to take that upon his shoulders, absolutely foreign to his nature. And he's saying, if there's any other way, God, please, nothing but this. But not my will, but yours. If this is what it takes, then let's go. You know? But for the joy set before him, he's going to endure something we couldn't even dream of or even get close to. Some argue the bleeding of the drops of blood is fantastic. Uh, of, of course, we just had an angel show up, so supernaturally, I, I don't have a problem with it being supernatural. But you don't have to go supernatural. Luke is a doctor. He's recording something that's a rare, but a, it's called hematohydrosis. It's a thing. It can happen. Um, there are records in Roman records of soldiers right before battle being in such agony, about to do something that's not in their nature, coming to a point where they actually break blood vessels underneath their skin, and the way that blood releases from the body is through the sweat glands. And you can break blood vessels next to your sweat glands, and what comes out is it mixes with your sweat, and it comes out like blood. Luke makes a point, though, here. His sweat became like great drops of blood. And, and, and that idea of just, it was, it was an obvious kind of situation. Being on the edge of losing it, passing out, that going over the top of a roller coaster, giving birth, having to be on fear factor, that moment for him creates such stress, what comes out is just blood. Such agony that's coming out of him. I think the real battle for sin and the cross is happening in the Garden of Eden. The actual execution of it all is not necessarily... He's arming himself for battle, which he will win on the other end. But he has this creeping doubt in him. And I, I think it's, what if the disciples aren't ready? What if these fallible humans aren't going to do the job? And, and, and again, he's fully human too. So he knows that they're going to be there, but there's this creeping doubt. He turns around, verse 45, and he rose up from prayer... And he had come to his disciples and he finds them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. So he has this group of disciples. He's getting served by an angel and the disciples don't serve him. Like the people that were there to be servants. He just got done teaching about service. They're not even there to pray with him. And the phrase sleeping from sorrow, or your Bible might say sleeping for sorrow. The idea is they're so... You ever get done crying and you just want to take a nap? You know, you've just let it out so much and you're like, I'm exhausted. They're with Jesus in the sorrow, the worry, the anxiety, but they were supposed to be with Jesus in the prayer. They were supposed to trust in him and pray, but instead they're anxious and worried. And the sorrow actually exhausts them, so they're not ready for the spiritual battle to come. And Jesus knew this was coming. He knew that would happen. But he tells them to rise and pray. The last advice he gets them before this major trial that Peter wants to win, and he's, this is the first loss that Peter has. Jesus prays, Peter doesn't. And we're going to see a progression here where Peter, Peter, somebody who loves Jesus, is going to fail to love Jesus, and Jesus is going to succeed to go through this mission, showing us all how to do it. Verse 47, 
And while he was still speaking, behold, the word there is, is it's an injective. It's like, hey, look at this. Wake up, see this. And it, almost a surprise, an element of surprise. While he was speaking, behold, a multitude. And he who is called Judas, one of the 12, went before them, drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to them, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Really? So like, you know, they treat Jesus like he's this, you know, major criminal. The multitude that's coming, we know from other gospels, if you look at the whole picture, there were soldiers in this group. The high priests were in this group. There's probably close to 100 people that come out to a garden to apprehend a guy who has never done anything. Like he's some arch criminal, right? They bring out, they just bring it all there. Judas is leading the way and he walks up to him. This is a ridiculous scenario is how Luke's painting it. Behold, a multitude? They could have just sent one person out saying, the priest wants to talk to you. And Jesus would have said, okay, I'm coming. But no, they send a multitude. Like he's like, and they do it at night. They're just sneaky. Verse 49, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Remember he told them they only need a sword. They can bring a sword on their travels. And one of them struck the servant with a high priest and cut off his ear. Didn't listen for instructions. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests, captain of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber? Again, the, Luke's painting this picture of how ridiculous that is. Have I, have I stole something? With swords and clubs, you're all armed to the teeth. Like they got their secret agents coming out, their SWAT team surrounding him from all sides. He's got a bunch of laser dots all over him. He's like, what, am I some kind of criminal? When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. You're going to work under darkness because you're too cowardly to do it. And again, Jesus isn't really arguing with them. He's just kind of pointing out these truths. The, the captains of the temple would have been assigned soldiers to each of the priests. And they want to silence Jesus thinking the world's going to forget about this guy if they can just end him. And then Judas with the kiss, like again, it's a traditional welcoming between a student and a rabbi. We don't do this as much here, but they still do this in some places in the Middle East. You walk up, you put a shoulder on, a hand on each shoulder, and you give them a kiss, and often kiss them on both cheeks. In the passage with Luke, it, it looks like Jesus almost interrupts him, kind of like, are you kidding me, Judas? We've been brothers for three years, and this is how you're going to do it? You're not even going to, you're going to pretend like you're my friend? There's a tragedy here, and again, I think this is part of the spiritual process that goes right along with crucifixion. I think it hurt Jesus worse to have Judas pretend he was a friend and be a hypocrite in it than it did to get whipped. You know, we often focus on the physical torture that's going on, but this betrayal, it's the worst way to go. Think about this. Only certain people can betray you. It's only possible from certain people. You have to love someone before they can betray you. I mean, my enemy can't betray me. I know they're my enemy. I, a stranger can't betray me because I don't even know who they are. But someone I care about, someone I love, they have the ability to betray somebody. And one of them struck. John doesn't name the person. We know it's Peter from other gospels. John's happy to point that Peter did it. But Lucas gracefully keeps the focus on him because it's not about who struck the soldier. Remember, they had two swords. So one of the disciples used it. One of the disciples didn't. And then they ask, shall we strike with a sword? The answer is clearly no, but they just go ahead and do it. You ever know Christians like that? They ask for things from God, but then they act on it before they ever get an answer. 
They're just going to move anyways. So it does the right ear. People get into meaning behind right ear, left ear. I don't. Verse 51, but Jesus answered. This was not the path. His answer to the ear question is to repair the ear and, and, and fix it. Frankly, we have a better weapon than a physical sword. We have a spiritual sword in the, in the form of those scriptures or the word of God. And when we look at God's word, it is a sword. And, and in Hebrews, the disciples even use this metaphor. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing sunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. And the word of God came among us. And part of like making enemies go away isn't to kill them. It's to make them into your friends. And Jesus, again, is still modeling it and showing it. Permit even this, he says. This is going to also be part of what we allow as Christians. We're going to allow people to take us to court. We're not going to have showdowns and armed conflicts. If they really want to bring us into the courtroom, let's go. Let's have that conversation. So he touches his ear and he heals him, defying expectations. There's a, a scene that's mixed in here that Luke doesn't include where he speaks and people just fall down this exhibition of power that happens. Luke, I think, is emphasizing the humanity of, Luke, of Jesus Christ. And he's showing us like how Jesus did this without any miraculous ability or power. When I was with you, he points out he was there all the time. But this is your hour, that's an interesting phrase, and the power of darkness. I think part of what happened in the garden that made him so agonized is he knows he's about to go over the top of that hill on the roller coaster. And now it's like there's no stopping it from this point. They're there and he's taking them and it's, all right, here we go. And this hour of some kind of separation from God, this hour or power of darkness where, where Satan absolutely rules on this earth. And we're going to see from here forward the illogic, the irrationality, the unkindness, undignified, just this vicious hatred of Jesus that is absolutely unleashed. And, it, and they're all earmarks of evil. And even his disciples are starting to strike people after being taught a way of peace for three years. Like Satan's just having his way. So Jesus hands himself over. I think this is important. What if Jesus just like went to the cross on his own? Well, that would kind of be suicide. And then we would say, well, he, he orchestrated this. But for him to give himself over to this mob of humans... It, he's a willing sacrifice, he's a willing offering, but he's not going to be the one to sacrifice himself. But he's, you do what you need to do. Again, this is another idea that you don't have to be Jewish to understand. Someone that gives up their life for you is someone you should regard. Anyone, any Gentile reader of Luke can understand his willingness to go with them is part of the story. Jesus says that Peter's going to deny him. Luke highlights it again. In fact, Luke spends quite a bit of time on this denial process. Having arrested him, they led him. They brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Who's the them there? We know that's a group of soldiers, just a group of people kind of, really they're up in the middle of the night because of all this stuff that's going on. So they start a fire to stay warm. It's still nighttime. Luke skips the interrogation of Annas in John chapter 18, which is kind of the, 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 the right hand of Caiaphas. 
And then in, he goes into another trial in Matthew 26 with Caiaphas. Both of those trials are held at night. They're illegal. They are under the radar. And you've got kind of crowds starting to form because of all this activity that's going on. The focus of Luke, though, isn't on those trials. Notice the focus of Luke is on Peter. He switches to Peter. Why? Because he wants us to see something about how redemption works. Remember, Luke is also planning the book of Acts. So he's setting up Peter as a character that's going to become the main, one of the main characters of the book of Acts. And this is his origin story. And his origin story doesn't start with him being the top student or figuring it out. In fact, Peter's story has been a record of failures. Like he keeps being overly excited and failing. This is the exception. He's not overly excited. He's actually failing without the excitement. And this humility, this breaking of Peter becomes something that as Jesus is dying, Luke actually takes the lens off of Jesus and puts our lens on Peter for a little bit, which thankfully that's good because it's agonizing to even think about Jesus that long. So Peter follows at a distance. Remember Peter's first failure is he didn't pray in the garden when he should have been praying. But his second failure here is he's following Jesus, but he's doing it from a distance. And, and quite frankly, I think this is a plague right now. People that say, I'm a Jesus follower, but they're going to keep their distance from being all in on that. They're just going to follow Jesus a little bit or enough to make their parents happy, but not follow Jesus in, in the way and in truth and in follow Jesus in the things you want. So part of being at a distance, and, and again, I'm reading something into that, but the lack of prayer leads to a lack, lack of proximity to God. And he gets further and further away. So it's an interesting phrase where, where Luke says, Peter followed at a distance. It's its own sentence. This distance following is something to avoid. But the reason he's doing it is because he doesn't want to be associated with Jesus too much. And then Peter sits down among them. So no prayer. Then he keeps his distance. Now he's sitting with people that aren't following Jesus. They're clearly not doing it. This is a recipe, by the way, for failing, backsliding, and falling short. If you want to fail in your faith, stop praying. Keep your distance from the Jesus people a little bit and then start hanging around with not Jesus people. And you're going to find yourself just as vulnerable as Peter was here. The image where Luke sets up the, the walking and the sitting reminded me of the opposite, which is Psalm 1-1. You guys know this one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Peter literally is doing all the opposite of the, each of those things. And he goes in there. So they're all like this. They're all going to be like chaff that the wind drives away and they're unable to stand or abide with Christ. And in Mark, I really emphasize that Christ goes through this alone. He thought he had friends, but none of his friends show up for him in this moment. They just abandon him. And, a certain, and, and part of this is in part because the Holy Spirit hasn't come upon them yet. right? The crucifixion hasn't happened yet. And so all the failures that they experience are things we don't have to experience in the power of the Holy Spirit. So verse 56, a certain servant girl, uh, the, the word servant in the front there implies she's young. She's a, a young girl, someone who would be, you know, up in the middle of the night for some reason. So probably not well parented. Seeing him as he sat by the fire, looking intently at him and said, this man was, with, was also with him. But he denied him saying, woman, I don't know him. So that's denial number one. He denies knowing Jesus. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you are also, you also are of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. 
So he started saying man. That's denial number two. He's not, he doesn't know Jesus and he's not one of the family. Then an hour passed, another confidently affirmed saying, surely this fellow was also with him for he's Galilean. He's got the accent. I can hear it in your voice. You had to know these guys. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. Denial number three. Denies knowing Jesus, denies knowing the followers of Jesus, and he even denies himself. I'm not even that kind of person. Three different kinds of denials. Immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned to him and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the words of the Lord. And he said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Utter failure. I, I'm going to stay with you, Jesus, even unto death. And then he realizes when that crow comes. But it's interesting, Luke points out, it's not just the crow that comes. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter's still within eyeshot. He's kept his distance, but he can still see what Jesus looks like. All of Peter's gusto is gone. His I'll walk on the water attitude is just melted away. His vow to stay is broken. His pride doesn't help him. Jesus stands alone. And Peter recognizes that he too is alone. And that what Jesus is going to do for us, he did it all by himself. He didn't need human help to do it. Luke shows that prior to the Holy Spirit, the empowering of God, which all of his readers understood what that was. By the way, when this book gets written and it gets sent out and delivered to different churches, those churches are acting in the power of God. They're unafraid of death. They are getting martyred and killed. And in mass, the church is operating like it has a backbone. So to read this, they're looking back in history to a time before the Holy Spirit showed up. And they're looking at how weak even Peter was back then. But they also know Peter. Most of the readers of this book would have heard Peter talk. They know what kind of guy he is. But to say, wow, this is where he came from? The disciples had no power and no ability and no righteousness. The seed of incorruptibility was not in them yet. And the Lord turned and he looks at Peter. The, the implication there, the connotation is that they, the look of someone you know very well. Right? Steph and I operate this way. She can look at me. She can raise an eyebrow and I know exactly what she means. Have you seen that with people that know each other really well? I used to have buddies in college that would just start laughing because they'd see a look on my face and know what I was thinking. And this is the kind of Luke, I, I don't think that Luke is showing that Jesus was accusing Peter here. I think the look was more one of love. See, Peter? There it is. And it broke Peter's heart. He's not getting yelled at. He's getting convicted. Wow, I really, I thought I was ready to serve and I'm, I got nothing. And I think before, you can become a believer just by accepting intellectually the, the, the gospel. But I do think there's a level of growth where you get to a point and you realize, I just have nothing to offer God. And when you're broken like that, it's almost training for actual ministry or service. And God will continue to put you through experiences until you get to that point. God bless people that can get to that point. I think children can before having to go through those kinds of experiences where the pride can be broken. Luke lets the reader know that Jesus is a prophet for real. And we get this glimpse as readers that Jesus is the prophet of this new kingdom that he just set up. And that look he gives Peter is like, see, I called it. And one wonders, like, 
Peter doesn't run away feeling like he's rejected by Jesus. Actually, this is something that after the resurrection, he loves Jesus even more. There's a blessing in this kind of brokenness that you just realize that you're there. So then we get to the tough parts. <laughs> this is just a bit of tough chat. Steph's like, are you excited about the teaching today? I'm like, well, in a way, these are tough topics. Verse 63, now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. Again, this is the hour of darkness. Evil just gets, the, get their, way, gets their way. Having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him saying, prophesy, who's the one who struck you? They're just mocking him. And many other things, they blasphemy spoke against him. Luke's just giving one example. It's a tough one. He gives this detail of what Jesus endures, the trials, the beating, the mockery. The blindfolded thing is interesting. It's a terror tactic. If I can't see the punch coming, I live in terror of the punch, and my body's unable to like flinch or prepare itself to get hit. And so what happens if you get hit and you're... you're if you ever hit your head on like you're walking in the basement and you knock your head on a beam, if you don't see the hit coming, you often can get concussions because your body's just not able to prepare itself for the hit, even that half-second preparation. So they're yelling at him to prophesy. As a writer, Luke just showed us or reminded us the verse before that Jesus was the prophet of this new kingdom. Yet he's not answering these people. Humanity, I think, wants to mock and disregard God even strike out at God. And for this season, this evening, God gives them the ability to actually strike and incarnate God. And the world and the people that hate God, the anti-Christ spirit in people, knowing who he is at some level, they love the fact that they can strike at a God and hit a God. Like the Greeks fantasized about this in their, their, their stories. This I, Luke demonstrates Peter abandons and betrays Jesus, but he's going to come back. And Jesus has complete omniscience over what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. He knew the hitting was coming too. And don't miss that they call him a prophet. So it's, it, what's important here is even the evil people hitting him out of their mouth, they're calling him a prophet. And Jesus is going to do this in multiple times, but all of humanity gets full game, open season on the Savior, and they call him a prophet in the process. They're giving him a title. And so Jesus takes that title, and he doesn't answer them. He draws on no divine power from here to the end of the crucifixion. He endures this as a human, like any other human would have to endure it. Why does he endure it all? Why didn't Jesus just get his head cut off? You know, if God's orchestrating all this, why couldn't it just be a quick death? Why the torture? Why the struggling? Why the mockery of this? And I, I can think of three reasons. Maybe you can think of more. We'll talk about them afterwards. I think Jesus is still teaching his disciples how to love and not hate. Because Peter's still within eye reach, remember? He like goes away, but there's disciples seeing this who Luke is interviewing. And he's showing them what it looks like to go through a martyrdom. This is a tough lesson, and it's not for every Christian, but it is for some. For three days... It's going to look like God has given up, but at the end of three days, God will defend the honor of the name of Jesus. Humanity is trying to dishonor Jesus, and everything they do to him is just going to pile onto the honor he's going to get in three days. So second reason, God's playing the long game. You do everything you think you can do to me as an incarnate God, and I will turn it around and make it a blessing. Give me your worst. You know, uh, we used to have boxers that would box like that, mostly in the 70s. And they were just like, hit me as hard as you want. 
and then I'm going to come back and fight. Muhammad Ali would play this game with people. He'd wear them out. And, I, and you get this sense that God's just saying, you do whatever you think you need to do to me. Get it out. Get it out of your system. Third reason, I think Jesus is enduring every kind of wrath, spiritual, emotional, and physical, that humans can think of. It's truly unjust, and it's truly evil. The image of evil and good here is absolutely getting to be crystal clear. When evil gets its way, even moderate people can see this is wrong, and it's horrible. You wonder if there were any soldiers that went home that next day and their wife said, how did your day at work go? And something in them just broke. Well, I just beat a man for no reason who did nothing. And that's what my life has come to. And I don't even know. I was, it was almost like I couldn't control myself. I just wanted to hit him. Every strike and every non-response is a spiritual attack and victory for Jesus Christ. Physically, he's losing. Spiritually, every single one is an opportunity for him to hate humanity. Every single hit is an opportunity for him to be bitter and angry and blame these darn humans for what they've done. Every single hit, God could just let go and say, I'm done with humanity. And in each one of these cases, Jesus just keeps winning spiritual battle after spiritual battle. He's still like evangelizing on the cross. Like he keeps winning spiritually. As soon as it was day, verse 66, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led them into their council saying, if you're the Christ, tell us. They want him to say it. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. There's no chance you're going to let me go right now. You got me. You got me right where you want me. Two nights, two nighttime trials, that was unjust. It's actually illegal. Now this public morning trial that Luke shows us is the legal trial, but notice how short it is. And in its shortness, it breaks a ton of laws. So Luke, even a Gentile reader would be like, wow, there's evil using the courtrooms. We should point that out. Evil loves to use human law to trap good people. You know, when the communists were killing people, it was legal because they had a government saying it was okay to do that. When Hitler was killing Jews, he was doing it under legal German circumstances. Great evil often happens not outside of the law, but inside of the law. So they're using three different courtrooms to do this evil to Jesus. And Jesus just, I love it, man. He just points out the truth. You guys are just, you're evil. I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to answer your little question. I'm not going to jump into your little mantra you want me to say. You want me to say I'm the Christ so you can have a quick trial? I'm not going to do that. Prove it. One way or the other. It's your trial. It's your courtroom. I'm going to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. I'm going to give to these temple priests. This is your authority territory. It's your job to say that I'm guilty. It's not my job to make that happen for you. If you're the Christ, tell us. Well, he has told them for three years. Why does he need to repeat it? He's shown it more so that he's demonstrated that he's the Christ. No problem. It's the demand here. It's that evil wants power over even God, where God answers to humanity. Have you ever heard people say that? I prayed and I asked God for something. He didn't answer me, so forget God. I don't know anything to do with him. That's just human nature. Like, I want God to answer to me. I want him to be a little puppet, and I pull the strings, and God does whatever I want to. He's my genie in a bottle, only I get infinite wishes. And that's what my relationship with God should look like. And Jesus' response to that, I think, is, 
man, if I do that sort of thing for you, it's not going to help you believe any more or less. If I answer those things, if, if I ask you things, you're not even going to answer me. I can't even speak to you because you're always talking. Due to the previous two trials, they know exactly how to go right to the end of this trial. Are you the Christ? First of all, the soldiers called him a prophet and the priests now call him Christ. You tell us you're the Christ and, and they're using that phrase. And he says, if I tell you, you won't believe. So what's the point? Again, Jesus just points out the pretense. This is all fake, you guys. You guys are trying to pretend like you're a legal court. You're not. doesn't matter what I say or do. You're going to kill me. After he's been beaten, like it takes a lot to keep your brain about you after you've taken that kind of beating. And they don't dispute it. Notice they don't even argue. Jesus just points out their hearts and they're like, yep, that's who we are. Because the hour of evil is upon them. And this is not a Roman trial, by the way. This is a, a Jewish court trial that they're having. And I think this is important for Luke too. Again, Luke's writing to a Gentile audience. And the Gentiles were happy to say how ridiculous the Jewish religion had become. And so this plays right into that. Any Roman listener or any Gentile listener would have known these beatings were illegal. They would have known that the, these were illegal trials. They would have known that Jesus should have had representation in the Roman Empire. He, th there's a guilty verdict that is supposed to wait one day before punishment. is. So the beatings were, should have happened one day later, according to Jewish law. There should have been two witnesses, according to Jewish law. They break every rule there is. It's nothing close to a legal trial. There, Jesus has said no crime. He's done no crime. And he's said nothing against Caesar. So there's no reason under, under a Roman court that anything should have happened to this man. There was no evidence against him. In the first two trials we see in the other Gospels, they tried to bring forth witnesses, and they all contradicted each other. So they couldn't even get two people to agree. So, and, I, and again, I think God is showing, like, you guys have tried to set up a court system, but even your justice is flawed. And all of this puts humanity on trial, not Jesus. The Jewish trials are designed for mercy. They give preference to the accused. And they're not doing any of that here. They're just railroading this guy. It is not illegal in the Roman Empire to think that you're a god. So we just want to point that out. There were a number of Greeks and Romans that felt like they had descended from the gods. In fact, the Caesar himself claimed that he was a god. It's on their currency. So for Jesus to say, I'm a god, the Roman response would be, really? Let's see if you can take a punch. Like, let's see how godlike you are. Let's get you on the battlefield and see if you're indestructible. So there's nothing illegal about what's going on. And any Gentile reader would read this court thing and they would think, wow, this isn't fair at all. And, and verse 68, and if I ask you, it's interesting, Jesus has done this with his disciples. Remember he said to his disciples, who do you think I am? And they respond to him and he rewards the correct answer. So he's maybe bringing that back up. Maybe he's got disciples within earshot that are hearing him say these things. And he's still teaching his disciples. Jesus can see that their minds are made up. I don't think there's any miracle in that. He's not reading their minds. He can recognize the situation for what it is. He calls it out. He brings it to clarity. And he isn't obligated to play their game. You want to have a circus of a courtroom, you have your circus of a courtroom. Verse 69, we'll head towards the end of this chapter. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. 
So he tells the truth. Hey, what's going to happen next is the Son of Man will have the power of God. This is also a clearly a statement of authority. They're judging him, and he's basically saying, the Son of Man, whoever that might be, is about to judge you. Everything that happens from here forward, you're held accountable for. So that will sit is an image. Of, we, don't think, we don't talk like this, but to sit in a seat is the way in which people had authority in the Roman Empire. You were given a seat or a throne from which you judged or managed your kingdom. Again, if the conversation from the beginning of the chapter was about a kingdom, we've seen a prophet get established. We've seen a Christ get established. And this kingdom, this domain, this authority claim that's there is always about these people. So if the disciples are the 12 judges that we saw earlier, they're going to be equal. Who has authority over those 12 judges? The judge, the high judge. And so Jesus in saying this, mentioning sitting at the right hand of the power of God, essentially, not, he's adding a title. The Son of Man is also going to be the judge and determine what's right or what's wrong. So he just added a high judge to this kingdom. He's going to be king, priest, prophet, and judge. And all of those. And Luke sets this up. And then they all said, are you, this, just, are you the son of God? Notice how they change it. He said, the son of man will sit at the right hand of God. And he says, are you the son of God? Again, understanding son of language is a big deal here. To be a son of is to not only be a biological descendant, but to also have the nature of someone. I could have four sons, but only one of them is like me. The other ones are all like their mom. And I'd say that's the, that's the son of Sean. It's very clear right there. He has the nature of that person. There's also a connotation here to have the inheritance. The firstborn son gets the inheritance. So the son of, the son of, we see a ton of it in the Old Testament, is not just to be the inheritor of the thing, but to have the nature of the thing. So let's go back and look at this. This is a key passage. The son of man has the full nature and inheritance of mankind. That's the cup of wrath. The inheritance of mankind is the Son of Man will drink the cup of wrath. For Messiah, that's the, the full nature of humanity is in this person. And then it's interchangeable in verse 70. It's they, the high priests, that make it interchangeable. Are you then the Son of God? The word then there is important. Based on what you just said, are you the Son of God having the full nature of and the full inheritance of God? Because only the Messiah is both. So you're talking about the Son of Man, that could be the Son of any man. But if you're the Son of Man and the Son of God, you're the Messiah. Which is what they asked him before, are you the Christ? So in doing this, they are out of their mouth saying who he is. They have out of their own mouth called him a prophet. Out of their own mouth they've called him the Messiah. And now with this question, they also say out of their own mouth the words Son of God, which he didn't use. He used Son of Man. I think this is significant. It's, and then he says to them, so he says to them, you rightly say that I am. No doubt about what he's doing there, but he lets the words come from their mouths. Direct, clear, and all of humanity's authority just assigned him those positions. This is both the Son of Man speaking for mankind and having God speak to him as an incarnate human and the Son of God, Messiah's nature, God's nature being incarnate. And they say it, even in the question, they profess it with their mouths. This isn't about the commotion he made in the temple. It's not about lies they think he's saying. It's not about false teaching. It's about who he is. 
And notice how this Luke just gives us those basic elements. It's probably a much longer trial, but that's what Luke wants us to hear. The entire discussion wasn't about what Jesus did. It's about who he is and who he claims to be. And verse 70, and they said, what further testimony do we need? They avoid any witnesses because they failed in the last two trials. They just, hey, we don't need any more testimony. Well, that's illegal. For we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So that ends the trial. There is no defense given for Jesus. Can you imagine a courtroom where the other side doesn't get to state their case? And that's what Luke paints here. There's no defense allowed. It's done. It's over. He said it. So they've, <laughs> they think that Jesus just sealed his fate. But remember in verse 69, he said, the Son of Man hereafter, they just sealed their own fate. And they just determined what's going to happen. And I don't think this is just like, let's hate on the high priests. I think they represent the Jewish people and the temple system that was set up under Moses and, and built under Solomon and rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah. I think that the fate of the temple just ended and the decision's been made. They've been judged. And, and only in the end days, God says he'll bring back this temple, which is a beautiful example of heaven. And in the end of days, this is going to be rebuilt. Messiah, Revelation, has Ezekiel have a new temple getting built where God reinstitutes some of the practices there. And it's beautiful. But these particular people with this second temple period, um, they just sealed their fate. They're kind of doomed at this point forward. And again, Jesus is going along with whatever humanity is going to do to him. We'll pick back up with that next week and we'll dig into chapter 23. I will try to get through the whole chapter in one week because as my wife requests, it is hard to go through crucifixion chapters. But on the other hand, Jesus tells us to remember these things. Remember what he went through. Remember why he went through it. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word as tough as it is sometimes to hear and to listen to. But Lord, help our hearts be melted to know that we have a Savior that loved us enough even to do these things to go through these things. Lord, that you are still teaching and tuned into Peter while you were being beaten. And Lord, you, you're the same with us. Even while we, you're abused by most of this planet, while your name becomes a swear word, uh, or the disrespect that you're shown in every walk of life by every group of people, Lord, we want to hold your name on high and hold it as precious. So we lift your name up. And Lord, we know that even while all these things are happening on the planet, you even still love us and you love your bride and you love your church and you're coming back for us. Lord, we can't wait for that day. We can't wait for the justice to be made right. We also can't wait for the mercy that you're going to show and the love and the grace that you're going to have. Lord, we can't wait for everything you're going to do. So Lord, help us today to enjoy our lunch and the fellowship with each other. Help us to start a, not just a lifetime friendship with somebody else in this room, but an eternal friendship with the other people in this room. And Lord, help us to live together, walk together, and just be as you commanded us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.